I'm going to be reading from Numbers 13 and Numbers 20. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites from each ancestral tribe. Send one of its leaders. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, go up through the Negev and on to the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do you do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land? It was the season for the first ripe grapes. So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rahab towards Labohamath. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron, where Ahiman, Shishai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived. Hebron had been built seven years before Zon in Egypt. Where they reached, when they reached the valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing the single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, uh, along with some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. At the end of the 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. They, were, they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can cer- certainly do it. But, then, but the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak come from Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our, own, in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Uh, chapter 20. In the first month of the whole Israelite community, arrived, of the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There Miriam died and was buried. Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition of Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead from the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt into this terrible place? It was no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the town to the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community, so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, 
Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. These were the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord and where he was proved holy among them. So back in June, um, when I was asked to speak on this date and on these chapters, um, I started to research and read and because I'm a nerd and I kind of enjoy the whole process. Um, so I'd pretty much written my whole sermon on Numbers 13. And then this past week, I started to get this like niggling sensation that this was not what I was supposed to talk about. And then I went out for breakfast with Dave on Thursday morning at Breezy Corny's. Corny's. <laughs> Breezy Corners. Fantastic greasy spoon if you ever want to get a good breakfast. And uh, that conversation pretty much confirmed that I would be spending my weekend rewriting my entire sermon. So ignore the title of Giants and Grasshoppers. It has a little bit to do with this message, but I was trying to think of a title and, and I thought, well, maybe I kept on thinking Moses, a better man. And then I started to sing Pearl Jam and I'm like, hmm. It's probably not the title either. So to be honest, I don't have a title. I need to come up with one yet. But um, this is a sermon um, about Moses, um, the friend of God. Maybe that's my title, Moses, friend of God. Last fall, I spent three days backpacking through Salar de Uyuni in Bolivia. The Salar is a massive desert of salt that spans over 10,500 kilometers. It's a popular must-see destination that I never saw when I was living there, but I always wanted to go back. And although I'm glad I went, I left with a bad back, two black toes, and a feeling of desolation that I never want to experience again. There's a picture of the Salar. It's going to wait for it to come up. There it is, the part, a picture of the Salar. Um, it's miles and miles of whiteness as far as the eye can see. When you could see, because the sun was so bright that it would like sear itself into your eyeball and it would just be like permanently there the whole time. This was a landscape that was so vast, so open and unending, but somehow I felt like I was suffocating, like I was in an oppressive atmosphere and, and I felt claustrophobic. After three days in this desert, I cannot fathom what it would have been like to spend 80 days in this kind of environment. After three days, I was dying to get back to the lusher, greener, more colorful parts of Bolivia. And so I kind of get why the Israelites were longing for pomegranates and figs and grapes not to mention water. In Numbers 13, after the first 40 years in the wilderness, the, the Israelites were so close to entering Canaan, so close to drinking milk and eating honey, but instead they became fearful and doubtful and complaining. And so God turned them right back around and marched them into the dry land for another 40 years. 
And then there's Moses. This poor guy spends his whole life putting up with a bunch of whiners and complainers. And then in the end, he's not even allowed to enter the place that he's been talking and dreaming about for 80 years. Was hitting the rock instead of speaking to it really so bad that it merited banishment from the promised land? God's judgment of his humble and loyal friend seems a little harsh. Moses was God's friend. God spoke to him face to face, showed him his glory, and there was no other prophet after Moses who experienced this type of deep, intimate friendship with God. In the book, Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership, Ruth Haley Barton said, Moses and God were like an old married couple, loving and arguing with one another and enjoying a deep understanding of each other. And another pastor, Gordon Crosby, said that Moses was God's radically human and holy friend. Maybe one of the reasons that God's judgment was so harsh was because Moses hurt the heart of God. Disloyalty and unfaithfulness from those we love the most is much more damaging and painful than from those who are distant from us. Every commentary and theological piece that I read said that it's not very clear why hitting the rock instead of speaking to it was such a sin in the eyes of God, but there were plenty of theories. We often simply default to the idea that Moses simply didn't have enough faith, but the story is much more layered than that. In verse 8, when God told Moses to speak to the rock, he told him to take the staff. The staff wasn't just your average walking stick, the perfect branch that you're looking for when you're out on a hike. This was the staff that God gave Moses at the burning bush, the staff that God turned into a snake and then back into a rod two times, the staff that parted the Red Sea and when raised brought victory to the Israelites against the Amalekites. This was the staff that had brought water out of a rock once before. But God didn't want to do that twice. So when God told Moses to take the staff with him, he knew that it would be a powerful reminder to the Israelites of all that the Lord had done for them. It was to serve as a sacred symbol of past provision, but instead Moses turned it into an outlet for his anger. Not only did Moses misuse the staff, but he ignored God's instructions. God said, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink. The problem that arises in Numbers 20 is that Moses puts too much confidence in himself, and for one brief angry moment, he forsook his trust in God. Moses and his brother Aaron, they assemble the people, but in a rage, Moses said, Listen, you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock? And instead of speaking to it like God wanted him to do, he hit that rock two times. There's no mention of God and no sense that God gets any of the glory. It was pretty clear that Moses was to say something to the rock and not hit it, and he was supposed to do this before the people's eyes. 
Jewish theologian Deborah Miller suggests, What God wants the people to see is that Moses speaks in performing the miracle at the rock. It is a potentially powerful transitional moment in which Moses' publicly perceived action would be speech. What he would say would become part of the people's religious consciousness, part of their repeated narrative of the people, a way of adducing to God a caring relationship with God's people and conveying that care to the people. We can imagine the speech of Moses might give, performing the quintessential task of a prophet in bringing God and the people closer together. But instead, he calls them rebels, distancing the people from himself and by association from God, disdaining their legitimate needs and losing the opportunity to attribute the provision of water to God. Speaking the water out of the rock before the eyes of Israel was meant to be a very public way of demonstrating to them that God wanted to communicate to them through words and relationship, not just awe them with with signs and miracles. But instead, Moses pushed the people away from God with his anger. He called them a name, and by trying to perform the miracle in the same way he did the first time, he associated them with the past generation, as if to say, you're just like your parents. Nothing has changed. When we consider the story of the past generation in Numbers 13, we often assume that the sin was that they didn't have enough faith in God, that God would give them the victory in Canaan. And although this is definitely a big reason why they were sent back into the desert, many theologians point out that it was also because they didn't have enough faith in themselves. They were afraid that the land would devour them. They diminished themselves by calling themselves grasshoppers. And they were absolutely convinced that they could not attack those giants. They had zero faith in God, and they doubted that they could do what God believed that they could do. In contrast, Caleb said, We can certainly do this. And Joshua said, The Lord is with us, pleased with us, and protecting us. Instead of complaining that the land would devour them, Joshua said, We're going to swallow them up. Caleb and Joshua demonstrate that faith in God is absolutely necessary, but so is having faith in themselves. God puts trust in us to carry out his plans and believes in us, so we should believe in ourselves too. We are more than grasshoppers. Jumping back to Numbers 20, God wanted to show that this time was different, but Moses turned it into the same old, same old. This was not meant to be a lone mission. It was meant to be a joint effort. Moses needed to trust God at his word, And he also needed to understand that God trusted him to do it. Moses required faith in God, but he also needed to believe that God had faith in him too. And I feel like I'm repeating myself here, but I think this is a nuance that we often neglect, not only in our relationship with God, but often in our relationship with others. Faithfulness, trust, and belief in another person is so essential, so core to every relationship but so is believing that that person, that the other person, believes in you too. As a result of Moses' short look-at-me moment, 
God utters the most heartbreaking words to his friend. Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land that I give them. For his whole life, Moses had been an obedient and humble servant of God. This was his strength. When we sin out of our weaknesses, it comes as no surprise. But when we fail in an area that we thought was our strength, the fallout is devastating. As I've talked about before, when I was 22, I committed my heart to God. I trusted him with my life, my work, my relationships, my dating. And a little over a year ago, I spoke about what it meant to be single, about a time in my life when I kissed dating goodbye, and how I had experienced God's presence in incredible ways through singlehood. Three weeks after that message, I signed up for a dating site, and I kicked off one of the most painful years of my life. I made terrible choices, like dating a guy who wasn't a Christian and who abused me for many months. My closeness with God suffered, and I turned into this anxious, panicked person that myself and my family and my friends didn't recognize. One commentary that I read by Reverend W. Binney resonated with me. The sins that we are least inclined to may nevertheless be the sins which will bring us to the bitterest grief. Every person has a weak side. There are sins to which our natural disposition or the circumstances of our upbringing lay us peculiarly open, and it is without a good rule to be specially on our guard in relation to these sins. Yet the rule must not be applied too rigidly. Job was the most patient of men, yet he sinned through impatience. Peter was courageous, yet he fell through cowardice. Moses was the meekest of men, and yet he fell through bitterness of spirit. We have need to guard well not only our weak points, but the points also at which we deem ourselves to be strong. I saw myself before as a strong, independent woman, content and thankful for the life that God had given me. But this past year, I quickly found myself repenting of choices and behaviors that I never thought possible. I didn't anticipate the impact that it would have on my physical and mental health. And Moses probably didn't plan on losing it in front of hundreds of thousands of people on that rock. And he likely didn't expect to lose what he had lived his entire life to gain either. Romans 12 verse 3 counsels us, For by the grace given to me I say to each one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. Moses was a good man who once thought too highly of himself on a very public platform. And as Reverend Binney also wrote, the better man, the better a man is, the more his sins may be dishonoring to God. A spot hardly visible on the coat of a laboring man may be glaringly offensive on the shining raiment of a throned king. 
Yet even with all this context as to why, God's, why Moses' actions were so offensive, it still feels unjust, not fair, and tragic that he didn't get to enter into Canaan. Moses kind of thought so too. In Deuteronomy 3, he pleads with God, Sovereign Lord, you had begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do the deeds and mighty works that you do? Let me go over and see this good land beyond the Jordan, this fine hill country in Lebanon. But God responded, that's enough. Don't speak to me about this matter anymore. On this matter, God had already made up his mind, and he wasn't going to discuss it with Moses anymore. All of Moses' life, he had bantered and argued with God. There are times when I'm reading through it, and I'm like, what? Did you really say that to God? But that was their relationship. But in this instance, it was time for Moses to move on. There are things that we long for and we hope for, we look forward to. There are matters that we place before God over and over again. But there are also times when God tells us, enough. Let it go. Stop talking about it. Leave this matter in my hands. Nate shared with us a couple Sundays ago, and he talked about how Moses passed through the water as a baby and was saved from slaughter. Moses also passed through the Red Sea, and he was saved from Pharaoh's army again. And it was water that marked Moses' journey, and ironically, it was water that triggered his demise in the end. Moses wanted to cross the Jordan into Canaan, but instead he passed into a different and better promised land. Paul tells us in Ephesians that for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I think that this was the same kind of sentiment that Moses had when he sat on that mountain with God. He looked over at that beloved land. He looked at his feet, those feet that would never step foot on that land. But I think he had a deep sense of peace and acceptance. After all, when it's all said and done, it's not a promised land that our hearts long for, but rather the presence and peace of God. Ruth Haley Barton captured the final moments of God and Moses with this heartwarming image. They had been through so much together, and now it was enough to sit and rock on the front porch of life, each one content to know that the other was there and that this was all it took to make life good. Life may not always seem fair, but it can be good when we have faith in God and know that he also has faith in us. He believes in us. Living life as a lone mission can be lonely, but when we see our days and our callings as joint efforts between God and us together, we can take on giants and overcome this grasshopper mentality. If you know that God has given you clear instruction to do something, go somewhere, say something, even if it's something as bizarre as talking to a rock, do it with confidence. Don't alter that direction in any way and be sure to give the glory where it's due. Become familiar with your weaknesses and your strengths and regularly present these things to God, knowing that if, when you fail, there might be consequences. 
But God remains faithful and with us, even when we are faithless or feel far from him. And in the end, whether you reach all of your promised lands or not, may you find yourself on life's porch peacefully as a radically human and holy friend of God. Holy friends of God, enter this week with confidence and know that you are more than grasshoppers. Believe with all your heart in God and know that he believes in you too. Have faith in God, but also know that he has faith in you. Now go find a porch, spend some time with him.